and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pi. So since we last recorded, we've actually kind of switched places. We're still separated by distance, but now I'm at college on campus for a summer semester and Pi is back at home. So there's a bit of a new setup we're testing out for recording stuff. And if you hear any strange noises, it's probably on my end on account of the fact that I'm living in a dorm with other people. Yep, I just finished my college semester and now I'm back home doing summer things. I've been reading my way through my massive to read stack now that I'm free of finals. And I just finished Down Comes the Night by Alison Saft, a gothic book with a big spooky house and enemies to reluctant allies to lovers romance. Now I'm rereading If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio, a thriller about a murder in a group of Shakespearean actors at college that thankfully has nothing in common with my own Shakespeare class. Down Comes the Night sounds really good. That's definitely also on my list of books to read. I have been working my way through recent X-Men comics by Jonathan Hickman in between my course readings. It's pretty wild. The X-Men are living on their own like island nation, but they're also living on the moon. I've also been reading Minor Feelings by Kathy Parkong because I do actually read stuff other than X-Men comics these days, I promise. But we're not actually here to talk about any of those things I've mentioned. We are here today to talk about two fantasy books, Deep Light by Frances Harding and Strange the Dreamer by Lainey Taylor. They're both pretty different books, but they contain a fantasy trope that me and Pi both really like, which is dead gods. What happens when the gods you worship are dead? What kind of impact does their death leave? And what makes a god exactly? Deep Light and Strange the Dreamer are pretty different books, but they have some very similar themes. So Frances Harding is honestly, I think one of the most underrated authors I've ever read. She is a British fantasy author whose works are generally aimed at children in the middle grade range. I think she's kind of less known in America and I've never really met anyone who's read her stuff, but I've been reading her books since I was young and they are fantastic and fascinating and well-written and unique and complex. I think she's probably best known for her debut Fly By Night and her novel The Lie Tree, which are both pretty well known, but she's written a lot of other fantasy stuff that I've read. She's very good. I think everyone should read her books like no matter the age range. So Deep Light is her most recent novel and it's an upper middle grade or young adult standalone fantasy novel published in 2019. Deep Light takes place in the Myriad, an archipelago where they once worshiped sea monster-esque gods who all mysteriously killed each other about 30 years before the start of the book. Religion has therefore become somewhat obsolete, but there is now a thriving black market of people hunting for and selling bits of dead gods, which occasionally wash up on shore or can be found by divers. The main character is Hark, an orphan slash con artist who along with his best friend Jelt is involved with smuggling as well as selling forged or real bits of the dead gods. One of Jelt's schemes gets Hark sold into indentured servitude at the beginning of the book, where he begins to work for a somewhat mad scientist and the old priests who once spoke to the gods. The plot is properly kicked off when Hark and Jelt discover the heart of a god after a very dangerous mission goes awry. Because a heart is a pretty powerful part of a dead god, lots of people want it, and the magic is powerful and unusual, it seems to be able to heal people, but it also changes them in really strange ways and starts to warp and twist Jelp's body into this horrifying new creation. So it's a story 
about the aftermath of dead gods, but also it's about the story of transformation and creepiness and body horror and the ocean and the smugglers. There's also a really good parallel between toxic friendships and worshiping uncaring gods. Were the gods really gods or just monsters? Is Jelt actually a friend or just a manipulative killer who uses Hark for his own ends? It's a really interesting parallel. The gods get creepier the more you read. They are so creepy. The gods are, you know, based on the premise, they're all dead from the start of the book, but we hear a fair amount about them because they had a really big impact on the world when they were alive and there's still a thriving black market about their bodies. And they're just really creepy because they're basically these giant sea monster things. And they're not like gods of things the way that in Greek mythology Zeus was like the king of the gods and the god of lightning. But they're all these kind of physically distinct giant sea monsters that are associated with places and they have like tentacles and scales. And it's just like very creepy. Deep Light has a very good like creepy atmosphere about the ocean. Yeah, if you want to read a horror vibe novel about the ocean, this has you pretty much covered. So let's talk about the representation of the gods. As I said, they've been dead for about three decades before the start of the book, and Hark, who is 14, doesn't even remember a time when they were still alive, although of course he's heard all the stories and makes a living selling real or fake bits of the gods to unsuspecting people. No one at the start of Deep Light is really sure why the gods fought and killed each other, there are a lot of mythologies in our world where there's a war between gods, but it's usually kicked off for some reason, like rivalries or prophecies. But in the world of Deep Light, the gods just kind of turned each other, turned on each other and tore each other all apart, just leaving these corpses that are floating around in the ocean. But even though the gods are dead, they still have a really big impact on the archipelago because people are still kind of proud of their gods and remember them almost like their mascots. And their absence is really clearly felt because there was a whole order of priests whose job was to appease the gods and keep them from fighting each other or causing storms or eating people. And the priests are now totally obsolete and just kind of sitting in their salt weathered, keep aging and keeping alive the stories of the gods. Hark obviously has grown up with all the mythology about these dead creatures that the myriad used to worship, but when he meets the priests who used to worship them at the start of the book, he begins to learn more firsthand about what they were actually like. And this is when you learn more about the mythology and the reality of the gods. So you kind of start up like, ah, okay, the gods are dead. I can roll with that premise. And then the more you learn about them through the firsthand stories that Hark hears from the priests, the more you're like, oh, wow, these things sound freaky. I am so glad they're dead. Yeah, I think I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler warning because I want to discuss some events and reveals that happen in the second half of Deep Light because this story really slowly unfurls the nature of the gods over the course of the story. And we realize that even though the people in the archipelago and Hark refer to them as gods, they're really just more like giant sea monsters. And they were created using magic, but they don't really have like a particular attachment to the people who worship them. They don't really care about humans. We're just sort of like little things living on an island that they occasionally eat. As one of the priests uh, who was talking to Hark says, we let everyone tell themselves that they were watched over by gods rather than terrorized by monsters, which is, you know, a pretty key difference. And in fact, we learn that the priests are the reason that the gods are dead, as one of them realized that they had become too dangerous and arranged them all to turn on each other and kill each other. It's a really cool plot twist, and it kind of 
changes everything that you're thinking about the book because you're seeing it from the perspective of characters like Hark, who have never actually met any of these creatures, but have been given a kind of positive feeling towards them just because of the mythology and stories and culture of the archipelago. But when you actually talk to these people who've seen them firsthand and had to deal with them and saw how destructive and chaotic they were, he starts to realize that actually they weren't gods at all. They were just monsters and people were lying to themselves the whole time when they claimed that like the gods appreciated their worshipers or that they could easily be appeased or that they're looking out for the people of the myriad. It's a really interesting idea. Yeah, and from an outsider's perspective, reading this book, you don't have Hark's background as someone who's grown up with the story of the gods. So pretty early on, I was like, uh, wow, these sound kind of creepy and like not really like gods because, you know, our, our idea of a god is someone who can protect you, who is maybe like a little finicky or fickle, but you can worship a god and in turn they might bless you. But these gods are basically giant wild animals that have to be kept from destroying the islands they live among. But people were kind of in awe of them, even as they were terrifying. People found a way to kind of live alongside them and told all these stories. And there is sort of this like, oh, it was like this great and powerful, awesome era that's now over. And people almost have kind of nostalgia for the time of the gods, even though, you know, once they were dead, they weren't swimming around eating people and causing tsunamis and stuff. And it's just really cool because I was like, oh, yeah, these gods are definitely like not as benevolent or cruel as Hark thinks they are pretty early on. But I didn't really see the plot twist about the priests having intentionally caused the gods to kill each other come up. Francis Harding is really good about kind of having, I don't know, characters believe things that are misleading and have things being kind of pulled out from under your feet. And often that ties into like the very nature of the world the characters are living in. So it just fits really well with like the kind of other stuff that I found in books because often at times there are characters who are deceiving others or being deceived and you can never quite trust the stories that characters tell the reader or tell other people in the story. So the idea that there has been this false narrative about the gods shaped throughout the whole world was really cool and just like definitely fit with other works by her that I've read. As we also learn, the gods, uh, not just being sea monsters, also literally fed on people's fear. So they're like not at all benevolent creatures. And in fact, they used to be people who were warped and transformed by the magic of the undersea, which is this kind of like magical place under the ocean where the gods dwelled. And the older and larger the gods got, the less human they were and the more transformed they were by the magic and the less sentient they became. Now, obviously, traditionally priests are liaisons between normal people and the gods that they serve and worship. But the idea that a priest is someone who knows the true terrible nature of a god and is protecting people from them and ultimately causes the demise of the gods in order to protect the people who kind of worship the gods is just like a very cool concept. And I love when fantasy books play with the nature of divinity because, you know, in our world we have like religion, but in fantasy worlds where magic is more concrete and people can have power, it sort of raises the question of like, what does it mean to be a god in a world when people can already perform magical feats. And I think it often turns into like, well, what is a god then? And is someone a god just because they have a lot of power? And is, if someone is a god, does that make them benevolent? So Deep Light plays with this idea that just because we automatically categorize powerful beings as gods doesn't mean that they are gods in the sense that we traditionally think they are or that they're good or that they're sentient 
or that they care about humans or that there's any kind of relationship between humans and gods in the way that we normally think there is. Yeah, this is really exemplified through the priests that Hark gets to know throughout the novel because a lot of the time priests in fantasy religions and our religions in our world are seen to have like a special bond with the gods and be able to like communicate with them. But in the case of Deep Light, it's more that they're aware of how terrible and destructive these creatures are and have learned like tricks and ways to appease them over the years to stop them from outright destroying the myriad. So it's not that they have like a special magic or connection with the gods or are blessed by them, but kind of they're more like their keepers and they try to like stop them from being completely destructive and killing everyone, which is an interesting twist on the idea that like you can be divinely blessed by a god and like go do their bidding or have magic. Yeah, definitely. So like we said, the main plot of this book is that Hark and Jelt, when kind of trawling for dead pieces of gods to sell in the black market, discover the heart of a dead god because their mission goes wrong and Jelt drowns, but Hark finds this powerful piece of a god that kind of brings Jelt back to life. And they learn that this magical heart can heal people, but it does it really strangely. Like Jelt comes back to life, but his body looks kind of weird. And like there's a bit where they heal someone, but like where his cut was, now there's like little suction cups like on an octopus. So there's this sense that the gifts that the gods give people like healing come with like massive strings attached to them. And it turns out that the gods themselves used to be humans transformed by magic. And Jelt is slowly transformed into this like weird, not at all human creature that has some of Jelt's memories, but like physically is just becoming warped by his proximity to this god. And it was just like super creepy and I liked it a lot because you know something is wrong because the book like subtly describes how Jelt's breathing or the texture of his skin feels wrong. But Hart is just like grateful that his friend is alive and also kind of trying to keep this a secret. So he sort of doesn't want to see it at first, but you, the reader, are like, oh, something, something is wrong here for quite a while before Hark realizes. It's just this like slow, gradual build up to the fact that something is wrong here and the magic that the gods have is actually terrible and like warps people and is super creepy. Yeah, I would say that um, the magic of the god's heart definitely changes Jelt in strange and terrifying ways. But even before this happens, it's pretty clear that his relationship with Hark is a very toxic friendship. And I thought the book did a really good job of exploring this because Hark is obviously a really biased narrator and he feels like he owes Jelt a lot because they're orphans. They relied on each other a lot as they were growing up and he probably would have died without his friend. But we, the reader, can see that Jelt is actually really not a good person. He frequently like coerces Hark to do things that he's uncomfortable with, like performing a con or a heist that he doesn't want to or a dangerous smuggling mission. In fact, uh, Hark has to be convinced against his will to do the dangerous mission that involves stealing the god's heart and leads to Jelt drowning. But Hark feels like he owes his friend such a huge debt that he can't say no to him. And Jelt is really good at manipulating him. But over the course of the book, Hark has a really great arc about learning that he doesn't need to tolerate Jelt's bad manipulative behavior and that he can stand on his own and be someone else without him. Jelt is also kind of terrifying, even at the beginning of the book, because it's pretty clear to the reader, even if Hark kind of deliberately blinds himself to this, that Jelt has clearly murdered several people and is very ruthless. 
Like he's willing to do whatever it takes to bring himself up in the world and become a smuggler and make money and survive. Hark feels like he has to follow him out of loyalty. So you're kind of reading about this relationship and you're like, Hark, no, can't you see that your friend who is already bad is getting worse, but he just keeps following him. What I often really like about Francis Harding's books is that because they're middle grade usually, which is like the genre that's kind of aimed at middle schoolers, there usually isn't any romance in her books, but they, they still have like these really complex, interesting relationships, whether it's like familiar relationships or friendships, or like in the case of one of her books, a girl and the ghost of a bear that's possessing her. So she always has these like very interesting relationships that are given such depth and interesting exploration. And Hark and Jelt's friendship is really the central relationship in this book because unlike a lot of young adult books, and I would consider this maybe young adult because Hark is 15, so he is a teenager. Unlike a lot of young adult books, there isn't any romance, which is usually like the primary developing relationship in a book. You know, two characters meet, they maybe have some conflict, the sparks fly, they get into a relationship, they deal with that. But instead, this is about two characters who have this like terrible codependent relationship and lived a really hard life. And one of them is terrible and manipulative and the other feels like he has to rely on him slowly kind of growing apart and Hark realizing that Jelt is terrible for him. So I really appreciate that Francis Harding's books often have like very interesting relationships that aren't romantic and are explored in like really interesting and unique ways. And I've never really read a book that focuses on a toxic friendship in the way that Deep Light does. And it becomes really interesting when you think about the parallels between the way people deal with the gods and the way that Hark deals with Jelt's friendship. Because Hark is kind of blind to the fact that Jelt is a terrible friend at the start of the book. He's like, well, yeah, Jelt kind of sucks, but like, I owe him a lot of my loyalty and we grew up together and he saved my back a couple of times. So even though he kind of like pressures me into doing stuff and like treats me badly, we're like best friends and we're tight and like, I'll never abandon him. But even you as the reader are like, no, this is like a terrible relationship and you need to get very far away from Jelt. There's also kind of this parallel between how people worship these monsters as gods and they're these terrible unfeeling scary sea monsters that live in the ocean and just see people as food but people have convinced them that they're gods and they're kind of fond of them and have all these stories and treat them kind of as like mascots of the archipelago and you as the reader are like no these gods are like super creepy and they're definitely not gods and there's something up here so you start to see the parallel between people worshiping monsters as gods and Hark thinking that this toxic friendship is actually like the best relationship in his life. Yeah, I think that's what I loved so much about Deep Light because a lot of fantasy books have really cool world building and Francis Harding is really good at like unique and immersive stories with awesome fantasy ideas that you could never come up with on, that I could never imagine coming up with. But she also has a lot of emotional depth to her characters, And I think that the story wouldn't feel as interesting if you didn't have like this push-pull relationship between Hark and Jelt and him trying to break away from his friend who's becoming like this strange terrifying god because there would be the cool world but there wouldn't be like an emotional weight to the characters but it works really well. Yeah and it's like it would be a different story if Jelt was a good friend to Hark and Hark felt terrible that his friend was being transformed into this terrible monster but it's kind of like as Hark, as Hark is witnessing this external warping of his friend as he like physically becomes grotesque and inhuman, he starts to realize that the inside of his friend is just as terrible. So 
becoming a monster just sort of shows that Jelt is already a monster on the inside. And I think a lot of Francis Harding's books deal with the idea of stories. They're like about liars and history and kind of the narratives that we craft. So I feel like Hark's character arc and like the general themes of Deep Light are really tied to kind of these themes that I see a lot in her work because Hark is a consummate liar. He's grown up on the streets. He's clever. He's always pulling cons on people. Like when we meet him, he's like tricking a merchant and then Jelt comes and the plot kicks off. But like our introduction to the character is him lying to people. And he ends up working for a mad scientist and the priests because he managed to like kind of wheedle his way out of a worse sentence by lying. So Hark is someone who is like always lying at the start of the book for survival purposes. But then he starts to sort of realize the power that stories and narrative and history have. And there's sort of a parallel between the priests preserving the stories of the gods and kind of Hark learning to stop lying and kind of more use story and truth and narrative in a really interesting way. And it's just like, mm, I love stories that are about the power of story. And Deep Light really becomes that at the end because people have taken these sea monsters and crafted a narrative around them that turns them into gods, but it's a false narrative. So people have to kind of break that down and see them for what they really are, just as Hark is kind of reimagining his life and trying to find out who he is without Jelt and move on and craft a new life for himself by becoming a new person. That's a really good point. Yeah. One of the things that I like a lot about Frances Harding's books is that her protagonists aren't completely perfect people. They're allowed to be selfish. They're allowed to have flaws. They're allowed to lie. She has a lot of protagonists who lie, actually. And I think she does a really good job with Hark as a character because he's not a very good person, but you can see like how he got to this point in his life. He feels like he has no one to rely on except himself and Jelt, and you can really understand why he's become like this lying, conning character. And it really does wrap up so well with what he learns about the truth of the myriad and the truth behind the gods. It's just so well done. I love it. Yeah, there's also kind of this aspect where he realizes that Jelt is bad, but he kind of takes a moment and listens to Jelt tell him the truth of his life and sees Jelt for who he really is. And is like, I have to carry the real story of who Jelt is in my heart and remember that. And he kind of peels past the lies that he's been telling himself about Jelt and sees who he really is. And is like, I have to remember this even if Jelt dies, like I have to kind of carry on this story. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I really liked about Deep Light is the representation of deaf characters. In this book, they're called the Sea Kissed, and they're people who have lost part of or all of their hearing as a result of their time doing deep sea diving. They're generally very respected people in the myriad, and it's almost a sign of status if you're one. I thought this was really cool because there aren't a lot of books that have uh, a lot of disabled characters in them. There's usually like one person, but in this case, it's a very common thing in the myriad, and it's very accepted. People, are, people think it's totally normal. I'm not deaf, but I do think that Frances Harding definitely worked to make this representation good. The deaf characters lip read, although it is shown not to be perfect, they use sign language, and there's a really good arc about how magically healing disabilities is a bad thing, and that people should just be allowed to exist as they are. Uh, Selfin, who's an important secondary character who also has a point of view of her own, is deaf, and there's a really good exploration of the way that characters treat her as a result of this, and the way that some of them think that she doesn't need to be fixed, and some of them think that she does. So I thought that was really interesting. 
Frances Harding mentions in the acknowledgments of the book that her inspiration was a young deaf girl writing to ask if she would ever include deaf people in her books. And she mentions sensitivity readers and a lot of people she consulted while writing Deep Light. And since I'm not deaf, it's not my call to make on whether or not she did an amazing job with the representation. But I think it's something that more fantasy authors should do and they should take more into account that like disabled people do exist in our real world. So like, why not include them in fantasy books? And I hope the Sea Kiss were just a really interesting exploration of deaf culture. Yeah, I thought that was a really cool part of the book as well, because I feel like there has historically been this tendency in fantasy books to be like, well, if you have magic, you should just be able to like cure someone's disability. But obviously it doesn't really work that way in the real world. And people who are disabled, such as people who are deaf, kind of deserve to see themselves in fantasy stories going on adventures. Like in Aragon, for instance, when I read those books when I was younger, I remember at one point the main character gets like a really terrible injury that causes him to have like chronic pain for like one book and then it gets magically healed and he goes on and just like continues having adventures and it's never dealt with and it might be more interesting to show a character who is injured and deals with chronic pain and has to like make that part of their story rather than someone who just like meets some elves who magically solve his problem or like sometimes there's a tendency in fantasy or science fiction books for a disabled character to kind of have either a magical ability or technology that kind of compensates for their disability like daredevil from marvel comics is blind but he has like super heightened senses so he can like practically see with his like sense of smell and sense of hearing but the characters in deep light are just deaf and they exist as part of a deaf community and they're like respected and accepted in the archipelago for instance there's like a detail about how when people go to auctions for parts of dead gods the front row seats are reserved for people who are sea kissed so they can more easily like lip read the people who are auctioning stuff or details about how most people know sign language, but like there are slightly different slang and like different variations of sign language among the islands. And I thought that was really interesting. And she does mention that she consulted like a lot of books and it seems like actual deaf people writing the book. So I I'm not gonna make a call and say that it's a good book, but it seems like it was a generally respectful way to incorporate it. I thought that was cool because like I said, the magic of the God's heart allows people to be healed, but in this like kind of weird warped way. So it's sort of a story about how it might be better to kind of accept who you are and like live with your disability than like relying on some creepy God magic from the bottom of the ocean. So I thought that the inclusion of deaf characters in this was super interesting. It doesn't necessarily relate to the portrayal of dead gods, but I thought it was just like a cool aspect of the book and not something I've really seen in fantasy that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think based on stuff that you mentioned, like the thing at the auction, I think Frances Harding definitely tried to like be respectful and think about her world building and how deaf people would fit into it. And I really liked that Selfin gets her own point of view. She's kind of a badass character. She's from like this family of cool smugglers and she's like off doing like these cool smuggling things. And uh, she's a pretty cool character and I'm glad that she got to have her own perspective be an important character, even though Hark is the main one. So like, ultimately, I just thought that was a really interesting thing that Deep Light included. And I think it would be cool if more fantasy books and more books in general would like make a deliberate effort to include disabled characters in a respectful and well-written way. I don't know. Ultimately, I just thought the portrayal of gods in this book was super interesting because there are stories from mythology and stuff where there are gods that die. Like I'm thinking of how in Norse mythology, there's Ragnarok where all the gods are going to fight each other and die. Or 
in Greek mythology, like Zeus overthrows some Titans and stuff, or how Kronos chops up his own father, the sky god and throws him to the ocean. But Deep Light is interesting because it deals so much with the physicality of dead gods. Like once a god dies, their body, like what do you do with that? It becomes this sort of coveted thing that people sell on the black market for magic and stuff. And I just thought that was super interesting because in Greek mythology, when Kronos kills his father and chops his body up, he throws him into the ocean. And then like another god kind of like rises from the foam, which is how Aphrodite from Greek mythology comes to be. So I just thought it was sort of cool that I don't think that was necessarily an inspiration for this, but I was thinking about it while reading because the idea of dealing with the physicality of a divine being is super interesting because it's like, well, if a God dies and then there's a body left, does that mean that they were a God to begin with? Because you don't think of like a divine presence as having a body. So once you're left with a question of like that, then you get into this whole nature of like, if there's a body left over, was it gods at all? And that's what deep light kind of plays with because people like are literally taking pieces of gods and selling them on a black market. And it just was super cool and like interesting and it reminded me a little bit of how like historically churches would have like saint toe bones and stuff and how it kind of takes an element of something that we've seen in the real world, but like spins it into this whole like new fantasy thing that just becomes all about like the power of story and fear and refusing to see things as, as terrible as they are because kind of having a comforting lie is better than seeing the awful truth. Ah, just so many good things in this book. Yeah, as soon as I knew that it was about people selling bits of gods on the black market, I knew that I had to read this book because you could argue that like, if there was a body of a dead god, people would like put it in a church and worship it. But like, let's be realistic. There are definitely like private collectors who want to like have a bit of it to like, display to their friends at dinner parties and stuff and that's the kind of people that Hark and Jelt cater to and basically I think it's also interesting that Deep Light makes an argument that these gods aren't really gods because they have no interest in protecting the people that worship them and their worshipers are really just trying to avoid being eaten or caught up in battles between them they're not really gods they're just very powerful creatures and it's an interesting idea that humans would make these terrible monsters into divine beings in order to categorize them and be less afraid of them. Also for like a solid day after I finished this book, I was scared of the ocean, which really says something because I usually love the ocean. Yeah, I remember when that happened. We were at the beach and you were kind of refusing to swim in the deeper water. And I was like, Pi, what's wrong? And you were like, well, I just finished reading Deep Light and I keep thinking about the creepy gods and all their tentacles. And I was like, wow, that book must've been intense because normally you really like swimming in the ocean. Yeah, so should we move on to our second book? Yeah, so the second book we're going to be talking about that features dead gods in fantasy is Strange the Dreamer by Lainey Taylor, which is a young adult fantasy novel published in 2017. It's part of a two book series, but I think we're just gonna be talking about the first one in this podcast. Lainey Taylor is really well known for her previous young adult fantasy trilogy, Daughter of Smoke and Bone, but Strange the Dreamer is a new story. And it is set in the aftermath of a war between gods and humans in which the humans won. And it follows two lead characters. One is Laszlo Strange, and he's the titular dreamer. He is a war orphan who was raised by monks, who then became, and then he became a librarian. And Laszlo is obsessed with the stories of a mysterious city across the desert that no one has visited or heard from for 200 years. 
And he's also like really intrigued by the mysterious radio silence from the city because when he was a child, he remembered being magically forced to forget the name of the city. And it was erased from everyone's memories and they only call it Weep or the Unseen City. So as a librarian, he's obsessed with digging through the archives and trying to find out as much about this mysterious city that he's never visited and never met anyone who has visited and come back from. And the other main character is Sarai. Sarai is a young blue-skinned woman who is the daughter of the goddess of despair. Sarai's inherited magical powers from her mother, Isigal, although her ability is to walk in the dreams of others and manipulate them. She also does this cool thing where she like sends out magical moths and they like rest on people's foreheads and then she can get into their dreams and she can give you dreams or she can give you nightmares and as a result she is called the muse of nightmares. Since she was a child, Sarai has lived in hiding with a group of other children of the gods or godspawn as they're called um, because the humans killed their monstrous parents and Sarai lives in fear that someday they'll discover that they didn't actually kill all of the children of the gods and that they'll come back and kill her and her other friends. So when Laszlo is 20, an expedition comes to his city from Weep, proving that they're real, not a myth, and announcing that they're recruiting outsiders to help them with a mysterious problem they refuse to specify in their city. And Laszlo jumps at the opportunity to join the expedition as a secretary, and he heads off, soon to be confronted with the fact that Weep's history is a lot more darker and a lot more violent than the fairy tale city he's built up his whole life in his imagination. So I thought we should just let our listeners know that Lainey Taylor unravels the mystery of what happened in Weep very slowly and masterfully over the course of the first few hundred pages of this book. It's pretty long. Uh, so our discussion of this, like even the basic setup of Strange and Humor, will involve a lot of spoilers to explain what's going on. I would recommend going in totally blind to this book if you want for a truly amazing experience where the author slowly unveils the truth of what's going on. So like, just thought you'd give her that warning, but now onto the spoilers. Yeah, so as it turned out, turns out, the reason that no one has heard from Weep for 200 years is because the city was being ruled by six cruel gods called the Mesarthim. And 15 years ago, there was a successful coup against the gods, but Weep still lives in the shadow of their great floating citadel, which is a physical reminder of the generations of tyranny they endured. And the expedition has come to Laszlo's home because they're recruiting outsiders in a way to get rid of this physical reminder of the terrible rule of gods that still hangs over Weep. Prior to Laszlo's arrival in Weep, there have been point of view chapters for Sarai, so the reader knows a little bit about how her mother was a goddess and how she was hated and feared and eventually killed, and how Sarai and the other half-god children have magical abilities and blue skin inherited from their parents, but we don't really get a full picture of the backstory or what is currently going on in Weep until Laszlo arrives. And the moment when you realize that the palace Sarai and the other half-god children are hiding in is in fact floating above the city of Weep and that nobody has managed to get there for 15 years because it is a giant floating palace is a really good moment. It's such a good image. And I really like that part. It's so good because you go back and realize that there are all these subtle little hints, but you don't realize because it doesn't say, Sarai was sitting in a giant floating palace above the city of Weep. You don't realize where she is and you don't realize exactly what the problem going on with Weep is until like a hundred pages of the book. But the moment when it all clicks is so good. And I still remember it from the first time I read this book and I was like, oh, so that's what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's really masterfully well done because you have 
point of view chapters from a character inside the city, but it very deliberately doesn't mention like why they never leave or why no one comes or where exactly it's located. So when she does finally reveal it, it's just so good. So anyway, the expedition that Laszlo has joined is supposed to find a way to destroy the Citadel or at least move it like out of directly above the skyline of Weep where it is still haunting people from its reminder of the tyranny they endured. However, unbeknownst to the expedition and everyone else in the city below, some of the godspawn still live there. Oh, so there's Sarai, Ruby, Feral, Sparrow, and Minya. And they were rescued from the slaughter against the gods as children and have been surviving and hiding in the citadel ever since. Incredibly fearful of the day that humans will return and complete their veggies against the gods. Sarai and several of the other godspawn were rescued by the character of Minya, who was a little bit older than them when the massacre occurred. She was six and the other four were only babies. So she was able to grab a couple of the children and hide in the midst of the storming of the palace and the killing of the gods. But they only still lived because no one knows that the massacre wasn't complete. And because as soon as it was complete, people left the citadel never to return. Minya is a really fascinating character because she's actually the oldest of the godspawn, but she looks like the youngest because she hasn't aged since the day uh, of the massacre. And she holds like this horrible fury against the people of Weep for the massacre, even though that she knows that their parents deserved it. She's furious that they also killed the gods, completely innocent children. And because of this, she like hasn't aged. She's always the six-year-old that just saw like all of her friends murdered in front of her. It's very dark, but also kind of a fascinating way of exploring how trauma kind of can leave you like in a single moment over and over again. Yeah, this book does such an interesting job of exploring the aftermath of the war because the Mesarthim ruled in Weep for about 200 years, but then there was a revolution led by a man called Errol Fane, the Godslayer, who killed all the gods, but as a preventative measure, they also killed all of the children in the nursery of the gods. And the god, the god, the surviving god spawn know that it would be viewed as just an extension of their parents' terrible rule if they were to ever show their face and weep. There's a good moment where Sarai is looking at herself in a mirror and she thinks she saw only what the humans would see, not a girl or a woman or someone in between. They wouldn't see her loneliness or fear or courage, let alone her humanity. They would only see obscenity, calamity, God spawn. And I think that just really drove home like how much um, the war between the gods has affected both surviving sides. Yeah, because the gods in this book are absolutely terrible. They are incredibly powerful immortal beings who arrived in the city of Weep just from like randomly and took over. and treat humans terribly for generations, taking them from their families and killing them and forcing them to have their children. And eventually humans finally snap and manage to have this coup against the gods. But the children of the gods, who are also all half human, are innocent. But the citizens of Weep kill all these babies because they think they might manifest with their parents' powers or come back for revenge. And because you get Laszlo's point of view down in the city, you see how much the reign of the gods still casts this shadow of the memory of violence over everyone and how incredibly traumatized like the entire city of Weep is. But also from Sarai's perspective, we learn how innocent the surviving gods spawn are 
and how they in turn have become incredibly afraid of the people of Weep because they know that they represent the sins of their parents and the awful reign of the gods for 200 years, but they themselves are innocent, except they know they're smart enough to know that were they to such as like set foot in Weep, everyone would immediately kill them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was Lady Taylor did a really good job of exploring what happens in the aftermath of a violent revolution and overthrowing tyrants because the people of Weep did the right thing. They broke free of their oppressors, uh, but they're still haunted by the violence that they committed and they have a physical reminder of the reign of the Misarthum in, form of the, in the form of the huge floating palace they left behind. So these characters are trying to move on and like rebuild their lives. Uh, but both sides have been really deeply affected by the rule of Masartham and the revolution that eventually killed them all. And it really goes to show that like there's so much history between these two groups that they might not ever be able to peacefully coexist. It's a very clear parallel to real world colonization because the gods also destroyed the libraries and systems of government that the city had before, even completely wiped their name for everyone's memories. And everything has to be rebuilt after their oppressors are gone. Yeah, well, it's not a complete parallel to real world colonization, but I would say that there definitely are like, the way that the Mesrathim have kind of eradicated the existing culture and religion and knowledge of the people of Weep is like really terrible and is the kind of thing that's happened in history before. But it obviously it's not like a direct parallel to any kind of real world colonization because no one was living in giant floating palaces or had like the ability to control emotions or set people on fire with their brains. But Sarai and the other god spawn live in this terrible in-between place where they are the children of humans, but they take after their parents in terms of looking blue because all the gods in this book like have blue skin. They look like their parents and they have their parents' abilities and have been living in the remnants of their parents' palace their whole lives. But they also are descended from humans and kind of just want to be accepted by them. So they live in like this terrible in-between where they don't have the parent, like they don't have the power that their parents had, but they also don't have a place in the new city of Weeb. Yeah, I thought this was pretty clearly exemplified through Sarai's parents because her mother is the goddess of despair and one of the oppressors of Weep, but her father, as we find out, is actually Errolfane the Godslayer. And he was a concubine of Isagal and was like manipulated using like this weird magic that can control your emotions into becoming her concubine. And he eventually broke free and killed all the gods. And he believes that he's also killed his own daughter because he doesn't know that Sarai is still alive. So Errolfame is hailed as a huge savior by the people of Weep. He's called the God Slayer. He's a hero. Everyone like believes that he saved them from oppression, which is true, but he's also very haunted by his own PTSD and the memories of his time in the Citadel of Misartham and the murders that he committed to save Weep. So basically he saved the city, but at the cost of himself. And like, it's a very interesting exploration of the fact that heroes are often not perfect people and often the things that they do in order to be named a hero can be leaving deep scars. So Errol Thane is heroic in the eyes of the people of Weep because he overthrew the gods and stopped the reign of terror, but he also helped people kill a bunch of innocent babies. And that's terrible, but also in some ways there was kind of reasoning behind that because people were afraid that these children would grow up to be just like their parents and continue this awful reign of terror. 
but he also feels really bad about that, but doesn't change the fact that he killed a bunch of babies and helped people do that. But also they represent 200 years of like fear and tyranny and death and enslavement. And he still has like a lot of scars from that because there's one aspect of the story is that Letha, the goddess of memory, would wipe the memory of humans who were taken to the citadel to be servants or concubines. I feel like concubine is maybe the wrong word because yeah, I think God, that's the word they used in the book a few times. Like this was obviously not a consensual arrangement at all. Yeah, I mean, Isagall implants feelings of love and lust into Errol Fane's brain because she can control emotions, but it's not a consensual thing. And like the city of Weep is basically just like massively scarred because the gods view humans as like playthings. And anyway, it's really messed up. And I think the book does a good job of walking the line where you understand why humans snapped and went so far, but you also are like, well, the children of the gods are innocent and shouldn't have been casualties in this. But you also see the after effects of how terrible the reign of the gods was in this book. Uh, anyway, as Lily was saying, uh, Letha, the goddess of memory, would wipe the memories of humans who were taken to the citadel to serve the Mesartham, except because Aerolfane killed the gods, she didn't wipe his memory. So a lot of people in Weep don't know exactly what happened to them under the range of the gods. They have like this big gap in their memories, but he remembers exactly what happened, which contributes, I think, a lot to like his feelings that although he's a hero, he's done some very bad things. And I thought that was very interesting because there are so many characters in Weep who don't remember what happened to them, but he does. And there's kind of like this debate of like, is it better to know what you did and what was done to you, or would you rather completely forget? And the characters often don't have an option in this because Letha would take their memories whether they wanted them to or not. Yeah, because Errol Fane saved the city, but at the expense of himself, because he is left with memories of years and years of being kept as this plaything by a goddess who had no respect for him as a person and like was just awful and terrible and also he's left with the memory of this massacre that he led against the gods but he did free the city from their rule but he's like racked with guilt and ptsd because he spent years with isagall and he still has the memories of like the incredibly bloody slaughter that he led but also the city is free because of him and I don't know, I thought he was a really interesting character because it's like he's heroic, but also he's a terrible person, but also he knows that he's a terrible person in some ways, but also in other ways, he's just someone who was incredibly damaged and is just like kind of trying to survive through the aftermath of that. I don't know, he's a really good character. Yeah, I thought he was one of the most interesting characters in the book. And a lot of his guilt stems from the fact that he believes that he has killed his own daughter, Sarai, because he doesn't know that she's still alive. Laszlo is the first human in the city of Weep to realize that there are still Godspawn alive because he starts communicating with Sarai uh, through dreams since her power is to walk in other people's dreams and manipulate them. And the two kind of end up falling in love and they want to reconcile Weep and the Godspawn, but they realize that it might be impossible considering the history between the two groups. So Laszlo and Sarai meet and because Laszlo does not have the baggage of either having survived the rule of the gods or having grown up with the memory of people who survived it, they end up having a romance together. I feel like the romance for me was definitely the weakest part the second time around because 
Sarai meets Laszlo in his dreams and kind of falls for him because he's not afraid of her like the citizens of Weep are. And he has an outsider's perspective of the city because he grew up thinking of it as like this magical fairy tale place, whereas people who actually live in Weep know that it is like still shadowed by the memory of violence and trauma. But he has like this very idealistic outlook and she finds his dreams like really intriguing and they kind of meet and hit it off while he's asleep because like she can go in people's dreams and talk to them and they quickly fall in love. I think Lainey Taylor's general thing is that she tends to write like really beautiful poetic descriptions of people falling in love for the first time. But when you kind of take a step back and look at it, you're like, eh, they've really only known each other for a couple of days. Like that was kind of fast, which is just, I think a personal preference for me. I found the darker aspects of this book like a little bit more compelling in the romance the second time around, but it's it sort of, they balance each other out because it's a story of, characters kind of finding new love and new hope in life in the aftermath of this really terrible ongoing tyranny of the gods. I do have to agree with that honestly. I think that Lady Taylor writes absolutely gorgeously. She has like beautiful imagery and turns of phrases and her ideas are so unique that she does a really amazing job of like persuading you to be compelled by a love story between two characters. But it is true that Laszlo and Sarai have known each other for like maybe a week before they're like madly in love. They've never actually met in person. They've only met through her dreams. So that aspect is like beautifully written as all of Lainey Taylor's romances are, but did feel like a tiny bit weak. However, I did think that it worked as a good motivation for Laszlo and Sarai to want to try to reconcile these two different sides and for Sarai to like feel more sympathy towards the people of Weep and like hope that maybe they'll accept her and for Lazo to realize that Weep is not actually like the perfect utopian city that he thinks it is. It's like an interesting relationship. I just think it could have been stretched out a little bit longer for me to like actually feel like these characters know each other. Yeah, because they, they haven't really even met in real life for most of the book. But, you know, I think that's just kind of how it goes. Lainey Taylor's writing is really beautiful and poetic, even when she's describing like terrible stuff, but it really lends itself to writing romances. So I think they definitely do meet and click and fall in love very fast, but her writing definitely helps kind of make how fast that is go down a bit easier. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, so what, what I find interesting about Strange the Dreamer is that the gods in this book are more traditionally like gods than in Deep Light and that they are humanoid and they're gods of specific things, for instance, Isagal is the goddess of despair, and Letha is the goddess of memory, and Koraco is the goddess of secrets. And that feels like more true to, for instance, like Greek or Roman or Irish or Norse mythology, where there are these like powerful humanoid figures who kind of have a specific domain that they rule over and a specific ability. But this story really explores how horrifying and terrible it would be to exist as a human in a world that's ruled by all powerful beings who are immortal and really just see humans as disposable playthings because you read Greek mythology and you're like, wow, these gods are like really messed up. Like, geez. And then you read Strange the Dreamer and it is a very chilling, realistic depiction of what it would be like to be a human in a world where you can just be snatched away by gods at any moment and where there are like incredibly powerful beings that you really can't revolt against who just like control your whole world. And unlike the world, in deep light where gods are not sentient. The gods in Strange the Dreamer are like actively malicious and terrible. And it's just interesting to think about the idea of 
how it would not be that different from like being someone who lives in ancient mythological Greece where there are these terrible gods having petty feuds and like snatching humans away and being terrible and how strange the dreamer kind of explores how terrible that would be but also how it would leave scars even after the gods were overthrown. I definitely agree with the parallel to Greek mythology. These are like definitely not the like all perfect amazing gods in some mythologies but they're actually they're honestly even worse than the Greek gods because the Greek gods at least have like some interest in protecting the humans that worship them and they'll like grant your request if you pray really nicely and give them an offering but the gods in Strange the Dreamer just have absolutely no interest in like the feelings or opinions or autonomy of the people that they're like violently ruling over they don't see the people in Weep as anything other than like dispensable toys to like use for what they want to like make them serve as people who work in their citadel and it's kind of interesting because a lot of the time you think like especially in fantasy mythologies the gods are benevolent like maybe they don't interfere in the plot very much but like everyone knows they're like up there looking out for you but in this case it's like no the gods are here and they are actively terrible awful tyrants and like they're not at all like divinely perfect yeah, like I'm thinking in comparison, the Queen's Thief series by Megan Whalen Turner, which is sort of a Mediterranean inspired fantasy series where there are gods, but the gods mostly exist to help people out occasionally or give like cryptic warnings or omens. And they don't really interfere with people, but they're like largely positive forces. But that's like kind of toned down from what gods are like in actual Greek mythology, who are always abducting people and killing people and having petty feuds. And it, but yeah, I think Strange the Dreamer does have kind of a more accurate depiction of how terrible it would be to exist in a world where there are like really powerful beings that can just like play with your life. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting that both Deep Light and Strange the Dreamer feature gods who are dead and both the narratives use this as a way to explore the flaws in these creatures it's kind of the opposite of like don't speak ill of the dead it's more like now that the gods are gone we can like properly explore how they were bad and how horrifying it would be to be at the mercy of such powerful creatures like the gods in deep light aren't actually gods at all really they're just very powerful magical creatures and in strange the dreamer they're magical tyrants who basically brought their own deaths down upon them by enslaving a city of people and I thought that was interesting because when gods are like alive and benevolent you don't really question them as like divine forces to worship but in Deep Light and Strange Dreamer it's like no they were dead so now we can more clearly explore like why they were bad. I think I find the trope of dead gods in fantasy books so interesting unlike religion in our world where people just sort of believe in things necessarily without proof and you have to have faith without thinking. In fantasy worlds you can see the tangible proof of gods and their power and that makes them more real. Yeah I think it's interesting that both of these books use the opportunity to explore the idea of what a god exactly is. Like are the gods of deep light gods just because they were powerful and magic and inhuman and couldn't be completely understood by regular people or are they just sort of magical sea creatures and are the gods of strange the dreamer gods or are they just people who have somehow acquired blue skin and magical powers and use them to abuse other people while passing themselves off as divinity. 
I think it's because in some mythologies, the gods do die, like Ragnarok in Norse mythology. But like in some of them, they are immortal and they can't be killed. But in these books, they are very much dead. And the fact that they're dead and these supposedly immortal creatures are no longer around kind of allows the narrative to explore the idea of whether or not they were ever gods in the first place. And like, if they weren't, then what is a god? Dead gods is a pretty niche trope in books. I can think of other books that do it, like the Inheritance Trilogy by N.K. Jemisin or The Midnight Lie by Marie Rutkowski, but it's not like, um, you know, a popular genre that's just overstuffed. But I find it really interesting and I always gravitate towards books that have that because there are always really interesting explorations of power and belief and humanity and like what it means to be a god which is why I always find it like super interesting when books deal with the aftermath of all powerful beings that have been labeled gods dying because then you have to kind of question is it god if it can die what do humans do without gods to guide them or um, to worship and it's just really interesting and it's a very niche trope but I always find it really interesting Mm -hmm. I think they also, you this kind of narrative can also be used to explore like autonomy and free will because what do you do when the creatures that you worship are no longer there and like in the like neither of these books really feature gods that like deliberately told their worshippers to do things because the gods of deep light weren't really sentient enough to do that and the gods of strange supremer didn't care enough about the opinions of the humans to like ask them what they should do but it does bring up the question of like if the creatures that you worshipped and like obeyed are no longer there then what do you do without them what kind of society looks like when you don't have a organized religion for people to like focus around and believe in there's the question about whether these gods are gods at all and they're not a real life religion so I think it's okay to play around with that like if you wrote a book where someone went and killed like the gods of the Hindu religion that would not be great because that is a real religion that people believe in but it's fine to do that in books like the Plato's Frank the Dreamer because these are fictional religions and it's really playing more with the idea of gods as a magical fantasy concept than like actual real world religion and people's reactions to it and attitudes towards it. I just find it interesting that these books feature societies that have to learn how to function without the rulers that they had in place who were supposedly like divine beings who had ultimate control of what people did but now they get to like have autonomy and freedom and decide what kind of stories they want to do what kind of government they're going to have and what kind of lives they're going to lead without the interference of gods which is an interesting concept and I think that's why I like dead gods so much because there's so much that you can explore in society because religion is such a huge part of a lot of people's lives like what do you do when it's not there and deep light and strange and humor both show there's a lot of stuff that you can dig into around that so anyway a lot of interesting questions about divinity and such are posed by books like these and i have a lot of thoughts on them and i think it's very interesting some of these questions are answered in deep light and strange of humor and the sequel to strange of humor but some of them aren't I also think that Deep Light has some interesting stuff about like the political impact of not having gods because in Deep Light they kind of realize that maybe they're better off without giant evil monsters that want to eat them but it also becomes clear that the gods kind of afforded the myriad a level of protection because people from the mainland didn't want to risk trying to like go over there and control this archipelago when there's a lot of sea gods swimming around that might try to kill you but they're free to interfere without them and that's kind of like a very practical 
aspect of the book that I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. I always love it when books deal with like the practical effect of magic on stuff like economics and politics. And that definitely did because it's like, well, yeah, there are giant sea monsters we worship as gods, but also like they have an impact on our trade and relationship with other nations. I think I just find the trip of dead gods really interesting because I'm a huge mythology geek and the idea of gods fighting each other or gods being killed pops up in a lot of stuff in Irish mythology, in Norse mythology, in Roman mythology, in Greek mythology, probably in other mythologies and religions that I know less about. So it's always fun to see people who write fantasy books put their own spin on this because it's such a prevalent idea in really old myths and religions that it's fun to see kind of more modern takes on it that might focus on like a more human perspective that focuses on really everyday stuff like selling the dead body parts of gods or dealing with the fact that the gods left behind a giant floating citadel that you have to get rid of somehow. Mm -hmm. I think essentially what's so interesting about both of these books is that they're although they're about these dead gods in theory and the world building focuses on that it's really more about the people. Yeah it, it is it's about how having gods or not having gods impacts people and the way they tell stories and the way that they deal with themselves and their understanding of the world. So Deep Light by Francis Harding and Strange the Dreamer are vastly different books, but I find that they're kind of interesting in conversation with each other, the way that they deal with how people craft narratives, the way that they deal with the aftermath of power vacuums left when people kill gods, the way that they deal with super interesting world building. So they're not, in some ways, they're pretty different books because Strange the Dreamer is a very romance heavy book that's all about trauma and Deep Light is a very sneaky book about pulling cons and stories and lies and toxic friendships. But I also think they have like a very interesting conversation with each other and both fit into the very niche genre of dead gods that we both really enjoy. With that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you would like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us at neverthetwinsshallmeet.com, follow us at nevertwinscast on Twitter, at neverthetwinsshallmeet on Instagram, or shoot us an email at neverthetwinsshallmeet at gmail.com.